Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Going into the 43rd federal election in Canada, questions abound about how the parties are going to pay for their campaign promises, particularly as the country flirts with a recession worst case, and best case, a slowdown. C.D. Howe Institute fellow and economist Glenn Hodgson joined us from Ottawa to provide his insight into the health of Canada's coffers. We began by talking about deficits. So for 2018-2019, the Feds ran a $15 billion deficit, even though there was $3.1 billion in surplus coming in through the first 11 months of the fiscal year. Coming out of this federal election, what do Canada's coffers look like? Well, as a starting point, um, we are in good shape, but not great shape compared to a lot of other countries. Our public debt ratio is about 30% of GDP on a net basis, and that actually stacks up really well compared to most other G7 or major industrial countries. The trouble is, it's not as good as it should be because we're, we're in a, an economy with pretty much full employment going at capacity. And that's the time when, balance, when budgets should be balanced and you actually rebuild your capacity to provide stimulus during downturns. So while the numbers look good on the surface, the actual application has not been great. And of course, we just, we're having an election campaign right now where even the most conservative party is talking about a five-year plan to rebalance the books. So there, we seem to have lost our enthusiasm for kind of good fiscal policy through the country. So if we can keep spending and the money will keep coming along. And I always worry, even when the numbers are good, I always worry about our capacity to step up during a recession, during a financial crisis, and also limit the impact on the, on the budget itself. You say, if we keep spending, the money will come along, seems to be the, the pervasive attitude right now. But will the money keep coming along, considering there are so many calls for a recession in 2020? Yeah, first of all, the recession call is real. I think there's there's some important leading indicators we have to pay attention to. Um, an inverted yield curve in the United States, for example, is not a good sign. That means that investors are, much, are more interested in, in sort of rushing into short-term government investments than they are investing in the actual economy. So that's not a good sign. We've seen a spike in gold prices at time too. And of course, this is being driven by the Trump trade policy, the trade war with China. The fact that global trade is only growing at 1%, there's a whole bunch of things you can put together and um, sort of reach a, a conclusion that 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 um, we're kind of at the precipice of a recession. I, I, the core forecast, by the way, in the, sort of the, the wider community is not for recession, it's for slow growth. So that's kind of where I am personally, but you have to be mindful of recession, and that's a time when you have to prepare yourself in case something darker actually happens. And we're simply not doing that right now. Do we have to though turn to fiscal policy to slay any potential recession dragon? Considering on the monetary policy side of things, the Bank of Canada at one and three quarters percent already doesn't really have a lot of wiggle room to continue to cut borrowing rates. Yeah. As a first principle, you're right. Um, we will probably have to rely more on fiscal policy than monetary policy during the next downturn. Although it's interesting, there's been a kind of an emerging literature the last uh, few months, including from former central bankers and current central bankers, talking about the need for monetary policy also to become more innovative and more, more creative. So you're absolutely right. We will not be able to rely on a cut in short-term interest rates, which is a historical tool that central banks use to stimulate the economy. We may see more resort to quantitative easing, where the bank buys government bonds to drive down long bond yields, or some are even talking about direct intervention in equity markets by central banks, 
as a way to kind of flood the economy with cash. So innovation on the monetary side, but certainly it would be, it would be good to have more room, more of a marge de manoeuvre in terms of fiscal policy intervention. Is quantitative easing really even an option at this point, considering after the last financial crisis of 789, we threw a lot of money into buying back bonds. The quantitative easing was substantial, and, and we haven't unwound it yet. Well, the Fed in the United States, you're absolutely right, Michael, the Fed in the United States uh, bought $4 trillion in assets through quantitative easing. And the European Central Bank is still there. It's kind of flirting with turning off the taps. But every time they see a slowdown, they're tempted to step back into the market. We in Canada, of course, did not uh, use monetary easing. The Bank of Canada never went there. Right. Was able to rely on short rates and other interventions, uh, sort of in market segments, to ensure, for example, that the asset-backed market was functioning properly. So arguably in Canada, we have more ammunition to use than other central banks. But there's there's kind of this new idea forming amongst monetary theorists that the old world of short-term rate cuts is not going to be adequate, that they really have to put their thinking caps on. So even though we never put the, the monetary stimulus genie fully back in the bottle, they want to open up the bottle and probably open two or three more new bottles to, to flood the economy with cash and sort of reliquify the economy as a way to get growth going. But is that the creative solution you're calling for in the event we have to pull that trigger? Yeah, it, it, it's almost too creative. <laughs> I, I guess I'm old enough to have seen um, stimulus applied a number of times in a number of circumstances. And at some point, you have to really wonder about getting outside the bounds of what's been, what's been proven to work on an ongoing basis, which is part of the reason why I always default back to fiscal policy. Having the tools in the hands of elected governments able to directly spend money in the economy through infrastructure spending, through targeted tax credits, through various other things, to ensure that we have a kind of a balanced approach to providing stimulus when required. The Liberals are predicting that there will be a $19.7 billion deficit in fiscal 2021. The Conservatives say it's closer to $23 billion. Who do I believe? <laughs> well, you probably believe the people that do their homework uh, first on the revenue side. So revenue growth for governments is driven by what's called the nominal economy which is a combination of real economic growth plus inflation, which will not be robust. It's going to be only about maybe 3 to 3.5% three on an ongoing basis. So you start there, then you look at the variety of spending programs that are being set out. And I suspect that um, we will probably, uh, we're, we're clearly going through an election right now where there's a willingness to spend kind of on an unbridled basis. So I'm not sure that answers your question on who to believe. But I do think that there's going to be a real tendency to, to keep spending, even though the Conservatives have talked about sort of re-anchoring fiscal policy uh, five years out and actually resetting uh, a, a balanced budget. How they get there, uh, the pathway becomes really important. And of course, they've talked about things like cutting up to $18 billion out of infrastructure spending in the final year or two as a way to rebalance. So I'm not going to pick one or the other. I guess... Um, None of the above is probably the answer that I would prefer to give. Well, then let's at least sort of drill down into some of those elements. Pulling back on infrastructure spending to get back to a surplus within five years. If we have a recession in Canada in 2020 or 2021 versus just a slowdown, as you're suggesting your base case scenario plays out, what would pulling $18 billion out of infrastructure spending do to the economy? It would, it would actually... Uh, worsen the downward spiral. So you're absolutely right. 
you can you can squeeze spending, you can slow spending growth, you can actually cut things in a growth economy. The economy can afford to absorb the impact and keep on growing. But if you do something like that, if you actually cut anything from transfers to provinces to infrastructure spending in a recession, you simply make it worse. And that's why, so if having a plan, but also being mindful about the current circumstances, is the right kind of balanced approach to fiscal policy. And of course, the deficit itself would jump from 15 or $20 billion to probably 50 to $80 billion on, a, on an annual basis. And that would add another five to seven percentage points to our stock of public debt. So there's always a price to be paid when you add fiscal stimulus. Um, uh, if you're prepared, you can pay that price without, with, without sort of having an ongoing consequence for the economy. If you're doing it from a deficit position to start, you're simply going to end up with more public debt. The idea of using infrastructure projects as a means of goosing a slowing economy is nowhere new. But we know that one of the reasons why the federal liberals found themselves with a $3.1 billion surplus for the first 11 months of the fiscal year, yet still reported a $15 billion deficit, was about $2.2 billion in transfers to communities for infrastructure projects and a billion or so for energy efficiency in buildings and things of that nature. But there's always been this, this follow-up statement that says that even though we've seen those transfer payments to the provinces, Ontario specifically, but elsewhere, that that really hasn't hit shovel-ready projects and that there's a bit of a long tail to that. Is, is throwing more money at infrastructure a solution when we haven't seemed to be able to spend the money we've earmarked already? Yeah, that's a very good question. So in a perfect world, governments would be like businesses. They would separate between kind of a current account and a capital account and how they spend. Current spending, you can plan on an annual basis. So we're spending money on healthcare, on education, uh, on a variety of government programs. That would be done through through current programs. Whereas capital spending is much harder to program on, on an annual basis. And arguably capital spending should be done allowing funds to lapse into other years, um, to have the ability to transfer between fiscal years. So in a perfect world, that's the kind of model that you would you would have in place. We often don't live in a perfect world, though. We actually don't budget that way federally. Uh, and therefore, you end up having to use things like anticipating future spending, finding ways to kind of park money in various accounts as a way to sort of uh, deal with spending commitments over time. But it's a very good question. I mean, we simply do not live in a perfect world when it comes to transfers. And governments often resort to various gimmicks or techniques as a way to sort of meet their overall targets, even if they can't spend the money wisely on a program or, or infrastructure basis. So post-2019 election, October 21st comes and goes, we have a, a federal leader, whether it be conservative or liberal, you are calling for uh, reform, tax policy reform. How do we accomplish that when we're also at risk of either sliding into recession or at least shifting into low gear? Well, I think, Michael, that the both the, the objectives of reform and the process to, to bring it about are, are kind of equally important. Uh, the C.D. Howe Institute has done many, many studies over the years on what tax reform could look like. Um, I mean, the economic research has a clear bias, for example, in favor of taxing consumption rather than incomes for individuals. We know that we're in a challenging position vis-a-vis -vis our American neighbors because they've had really deep cuts and kind of a change to their corporate taxation model, and we're at risk of not being competitive there. Um, so there are things that we could be addressing 
But it's very hard because it becomes, you run into politics. It becomes very difficult politics. We all remember, for example, that the, the introduction of the GST in the late 1980s, early 1990s was an important part of tax reform, but it was very unpopular. And we've had repeated governments use it as a way to kind of uh, uh, raise their political prospects. So I would probably put as much weight on the process as on the, the, the reform itself. And I think we've reached a point where we need to create some sort of an arm's length process, whether it's a royal commission, a white paper, expert panel, um, not to take it, take the power away from the politicians, but to depoliticize the process of talking about tax reform. And then it doesn't have to be so focused on the current level of economic activity. You can actually engage experts, engage in dialogue with the public about what the right thing to do is, all aimed at shoring up the growth potential of the economy. This should not, I mean, taxes clearly raise revenue for governments. And we drifted into a world where we're using tax more and more as kind of a political tool, pr promising things that are popular, uh, whether they're progressive or whether they're addressed to particular sort of interest groups, as opposed to doing things that really buttress the, the, the growth potential of the economy. And I think that creating that sort of arm's length process may be a way to kind of unlock the Gordian knot, untie the Gordian knot, and start to make some progress by having a, a more evidence-based dialogue about what good tax policy would be in the country. In a process such as that, how long do you think that sort of thing takes? And I ask with the idea that that feels like a very long-tail solution to the problem. From my perspective, you want it to be kind of an ongoing dialogue. Um, very unlikely you're going to get uh, sort of a group formed, get advice back within a year and have that turned into legislation overnight. And it's going to be particularly difficult if we do end up with a minority government where you may, may have to get two or even three parties together uh, in the formation of policy, which will lead to some sort of policy dilution. But I think if at least you can make progress on the process, on sort of setting up an architecture, um, that'll start to hit you in the right direction. You can at least have grown-up conversations based on evidence about what good tax policy it is. But I frankly have little expectation we'd actually see that come back in, in, in the term of the next House of Commons, which may last as little as 18 months or two years, or may find a way to stretch it into a third year. 18 months to two years. So it sounds like you're expecting a minority win leading to more uncertainty on the political front. Yeah, and unfortunately, all the polling that I look at, um, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing any one party um, gaining more than about 130 seats um, across the country. Uh, so minority government is, is kind of in prospect from most of the pollsters right now. Um, and that, of, of course, creates challenges. And the history of minority governments in Canada is they don't survive a long time. For the most part, they can live, uh, say, around two years, and then you end up back in an, another election, maybe with different leadership, maybe with different uh, campaign priorities, but that's the reality we're facing now. And if that is the reality post-October 21st, what does that bode for the economy when you've got a minority government that seems more focused on maintaining its power and its life than focusing on the economic issues at hand? Well, I mean, policy formation becomes more challenging challenging with the minority because the party with the most seats can do all the planning it wants, but it has to gain support in parliament to move its legislative agenda forward. And of course, you get caught up then uh, focusing more on politics than you do on the policy context. Horse trading. So that overall, it creates a more challenging environment. Uh, if we had to deal, for example, with the recession, starting in the US and then spilling into Canada. 
what kind of time frame are we talking about here? If the Americans slide into recession as the elephant, how long before it rolls over and squishes the mouse? Well, usually when America you know, gets the flu, we get a cold fairly shortly thereafter. So we're looking at a spillover effect of probably three to six months, best case, probably shorter than that. But again, the consensus forecast right now amongst most serious analysts is not for a recession in the U.S. or anywhere else, so, although Germany's exposed to it. That's the one economy I keep hearing about that's exposed to recession. The baseline assumption right now in forecasting is that growth will remain um, positive but not be really robust, but the risks are building up. The sooner we have a, an agreement between the United States and China, for example, on trade, the more that that uncertainty would, would be able to dissipate and go away. But we haven't seen that beyond kind of a speculation coming out of Washington about a small free trade deal. And on the topic of free trade, what about the USMCA? It has yet to be ratified by the Americans, and now they're focused on impeaching Donald Trump. Absolutely. In fact, I was watching some of the American media commentary this morning, and um, more and more Nancy Pelosi has their cards, more cards than the administration does. Um, and they're caught up now in a great political debate about the performance behavior of the, of the president. That does not bode well for, for actually getting ratification through the U.S. Congress. And in the event that we don't get USMCA ratified by the Americans, it's just business as usual with NAFTA in the interim? That's actually an open question, whether uh, falling back to the NAFTA agreement would be the default, or I guess theoretically Trump could cancel NAFTA unilaterally. And then we would revert to a world pre-NAFTA, back to kind of WTO uh, levels of tariffs and, and policies. So that's very much an open book right now. In the event he scraps NAFTA and doesn't ratify the USMCA, that sounds like a recession trigger for Canada. I, I think your risk of something bad happening, uh, the more uncertainty we're building into trade regimes, starting with China and then adding NAFTA ratification, the more difficult, it, it really becomes difficult not so much for consumers who keep consuming, but for business to take investment decisions, long-term investment decisions, in a world where the trade wheels are very uncertain. I mean, it's really hard for a CFO to go to their senior management team or to their board and saying, I want to make a large investment in plant and country in location X or Y in a world where the trade wheels are not settled. So it's more on the investment side than the consumption side where you start to see an impact on, on, on this uncertainty. And that's been playing. You can see that in the investment numbers in Canada for the last number of years, where uncertainty is now being built more and more in. And business is doing the rational thing. They're sitting on their wallets as opposed to rushing out and making new investments. As you're working on a report for the CD Howe on tax policy reform, you're also covering a lot of ground on fiscal policy reform as well. What should that look like? Well, in, in my world, as a former... Department of Finance official in the federal government. I like anchors. I like to have clearly established anchors. Um, I, I, I do believe, based upon the evidence that I've seen through my career, that fiscal policy can be used positively in bad times, can provide a spark during recession. But that means that you have to do things like balance the books in good times. And, and that's very consistent with the kind of research that the C.D. Howe Institute has done in the past. So I guess I'm well aligned with my colleagues at the Institute that we would like to see fiscal policy with harder anchors, such as balanced budgets or clear downward pathways in terms of debt ratios, really designed to give you the horsepower required to, to address a recession if it happens. 
Is it possible, as the conservatives are claiming, that we will be able to balance the budget and return to a neutral level, if not a surplus, within five years? Uh, it's certainly possible within five years. The trouble with five-year plans is that they then spill into the next mandate. They spill into the next parliament. Um, uh, anytime somebody promises you something in multiple years down the road, you have to worry about the level of hard commitment there. I would much prefer to see governments, as a matter of principle, uh, come up with plans for balancing the books within, say, three years, because that's usually within the term that they're governing or, or have some sub line of sight over the fiscal plan. But certainly over five years, you have a lot of, a lot of control over the rate of spending growth, reallocating funds, the kind of adjustments you can make on the revenue side. So uh, there's no reason why a five-year plan should not be doable, but it's not optimal for me. But is it even possible to turn a ship as big as the government of Canada around in three years? It's absolutely possible. That's exactly what Paul Martin did in the mid-1990s. Uh, you know, the, 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 the newest generation of Canadians sipping into the workplace didn't have the real-time experience of seeing us basically run out of capacity to borrow more money. So we had to close the fiscal gap fairly quickly, a deficit of about $30 billion at that time. And um, with a strong economy, with uh, NAFTA being put in place, we're able to do that in about a three-year period and actually have a virtuous cycle where we're able to pay down debt and achieve uh, fiscal surpluses for a long time. So three-year plan plans have been pro proven to work uh, on, on numerous occasions around the world and in Canada. And that's the kind of model that I like. So yes, it certainly is, is possible to turn a very, even a very large ship uh, in a three-year period. Economist Glenn Hodgson is a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. He joined us from Ottawa. Subscribe to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast for post-election insight into the fiscal and policy directions Canada will take once the ballots are counted. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.